0: There we go. I'd like to begin by asking your indulgence. I have pneumonia and let's see how long my voice lasts. I've had it for three months and finally went to the doctor. I began the meditation tonight with the four traditional mind-turning truths that motivate deeper practice. And as anyone who has meditated before knows, there are certainly times during practice when deep motivation is necessary. That practice uncovers places that we never expected we would find, that we never expected were there in the first place. As I also mentioned during the announcements, I have been running this organization called the Living Dying Project and guiding people who are approaching death for about 35 years now. And during this time of being a meditation teacher and a guide to the dying, and practicing Vipassana Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, and some other practices, I've come to the conclusion that, particularly in my own practice, that just sitting down and meditating I can get very concentrated. I can have all kinds of wonderful experiences. But I began to realize that at the end of many long retreats, that at the end of a retreat, I would be (laughs) 99.9% as neurotic as I began the retreat. So that even though I could have these wonderful experiences, it was difficult to integrate what I was experiencing into my daily life. And I began to think that maybe this vast experiment of taking these traditional Buddhist teachings that were developed 1500 to 2500 years ago by and for people who were unneurotic, grounded, centered, and loved their mommy and daddy was not necessarily so easy to drop whole cloth onto neurotic. Western personalities. So when I really began to investigate what that was all about, it really seemed that there are preparatory practices, foundational practices, that will enable us to integrate meditative experiences into daily life, and beyond that, to work with the psychological issues that are much more prevalent now for modern Westerners than they were during the time of the Buddha or Padmasambhava or any of those other people who walked around barefoot and didn't watch television. <laughs> so before people practice deep meditation traditionally those four mind turning truths are excuse me are contemplated we're going to die but we don't know when life is precious there is karma and there is suffering we're in berkeley so clearly everybody knows those truths intellectually But if in fact one really allows them to become contemplations and take them deeply within, then there is the possibility that when we come up against these psychological issues that are often coloring our practice in a very unconscious way, that there is the deep enough motivation to cut through that kind of material. The first turning of the wheel in Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Hinayana Buddhism, has the essential quality of cultivating trust in the mind. After we generate this motivation, Vipassana practice is based on the uh, glorious and deep assumption that all we have to do is bring choiceless awareness to the present moment. We don't have to figure things out. We don't have to change things. We don't even have to understand things. The Bible talks about the peace that passeth understanding. So we're trusting the nature of mind that all we have to do is pay attention. Uh, From the standpoint of the heart, We're trusting that if we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that the heart can trust something larger than the mind can know. And when we're talking about the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, we're not really talking about the historical Buddha. We're talking about the fact that freedom, ultimate freedom, does exist. There is a way to that freedom, and there have been countless people throughout the ages that have trod that path to ultimate freedom. And that our practice is supported by the practice of all people who have ever practiced before and are practicing now. That you and I are not practicing alone, that there is a blessing, there is grace that is available if we but open to it as one of these foundational stages before we plunge deeply into practice. Many years ago I worked with a woman who was dying of inflammatory breast cancer and I would invite her to come to some of the talks or workshops I would give (coughs) because she was such a remarkable person and a number of the things she said about healing were wonderful and true but not too surprising. But the thing she said that always surprised me every time she would say it was that healing is a community event. It's not something we can do alone. She lived longer with this inflammatory breast cancer than anyone had ever lived with it before uh, and eventually died after about eight years or so of intense healing work. So... From the standpoint of the mind, choiceless awareness from the standpoint of the heart, invocation, invoking the triple gem, or from the standpoint, if you're a Christian, invoking Christ or invoking Buddha or invoking the mother or invoking Shiva, but invoking something in the heart that allows the heart to trust that we don't have to figure it out. But what I find most useful is invoking from the standpoint of the body. What does that mean? What does it mean for the body to trust? The first thing that a baby learns if the birth and early parenting goes relatively well is being grounded. Grounded lying down, sitting up, crawling around, standing up, walking. And the second thing that a baby learns is being centered. You probably know that martial arts are done from the belly, and that a tiny, frail, elderly martial arts master can often defeat a huge, strong, muscular, younger person because he or she is practicing from the belly, not from the mind, not even from the heart. And that all of the energy of the universe can flow through the belly, so that there is this stage that I call invocation. First we do motivation, then there's invocation. Choiceless awareness in the mind, invoking in a heartfelt way from the heart, and getting grounded and centered in your body. You've probably had the experience of being uh, very clear-minded and open from meditation practice, and then somebody calls you up and says something, or You look at your checkbook and there's not quite as much money there as you would hope there was, or uh, somebody cuts you off in traffic, and where did all that mindfulness go? It, It might not be too available in that moment. What I'm suggesting here, however, is by bringing our practice into an embodied stance, being grounded and centered, then that will support choiceless awareness. And beyond that, it will bring us to the next stage of practice, Mahayana practice, the next turning of the wheel, which is bringing compassion into the process. And I will say certainly that James and Jack and the people at Spirit Rock are uh, doing a wonderful thing in bringing loving kindness and compassion and truth into a relatively central focus in the practice that is thought as part of Vipassana. But uh, traditionally, the belly supports the heart. If one doesn't have an autonomous belly center, if one is not centered, then the heart is only open as much as one feels safe so that you probably know somebody and you probably are somebody who can be very open-hearted and then once again something is said or done and all of a sudden the heart closes. Where is that ability to be connected with another human being? The bodily energetic component of compassion as grounding and centering is the the component for this invocation or Theravada stage. The bodily and elite energetic component of compassion is having appropriate boundaries. And I think one can imagine rather easily that there are three different ways to relate to suffering when it arises. The first is overly rigid boundaries Pushing the suffering away, I don't want to feel that. That's that's too much for me, pushing it away. The second possibility is over-permeable boundaries. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Uh, Your suffering is my suffering, becoming codependent. And the third possibility is compassion. Literally meaning with passion compassion being the heart the ability to keep your heart open in relationship to suffering compassion being the same as loving kindness but in the context of suffering so what we're saying here is that the heart is that I'm sorry that the belly supports the open heart so the heart can remain open in a flowing way But conversely, having an open heart of compassion makes bearable the suffering that arises as we surrender into our belly, makes it bearable and workable. I used to teach workshops with Stephen Levine, and we began to really feel that basically people store unresolved grief and suppressed emotions down in their belly. So this process of becoming centered, this surrender, this dying into the belly center, will begin to reveal and uncover long-held and suppressed emotions. Rumi famously said that grief is the garden of compassion. Grief is the garden of compassion. Grief has the quality of being separated from someone who's died, from an identity that's been lost, and compassion has the quality of being connected. The qualities of compassion are spaciousness, connectedness, and warmth. So if in any moment... You should feel contracted, or cold-hearted, or disconnected. In that moment, you're not feeling compassion. And my strategy in life is if I can really feel my heart of compassion, I'm willing to do or say almost anything at all. But if I can't feel my heart, then I fall back to the strategy of being nice, of being kind. So you might even contemplate the practice of going through a chunk of your day where what you're paying attention to is, does my heart feel spacious? Does it feel warm? Does it feel connected? And from outside, the way you're behaving, the actions that you're manifesting could look exactly the same to somebody else, whether it's coming from a place of codependence or a place of even pushing a suffering away. But the karma that's accrued, the healing that is potential for you, if you are acting from compassion, is much different than the same actions performed with a closed heart. It is now almost two months since New Year's, and uh, yet I would like to talk about New Year's resolutions. And the resolution I came up with that that includes all other good resolutions is I resolve to act from compassion toward myself and all other beings. And that includes then losing weight and taking care of your body and working with your addictive processes and all those kinds of things what would it be like to live a life in which you weren't wondering about, do they like me? Am I going to get enough? What's really going on here? But asking, is this a compassionate action? Compassion is... Not really learned, though, in the moment where you find out that you have cancer or your parent is dying or something horrible has happened. But compassion is learned in that very simple moment in which you're sitting, watching your process, and you see that you're caught. You see that you're caught in the story, you're identified with the I who is thinking. And in that moment when you see that you are caught, Do you come back to being present with a quality of voice that is judgmental, even in a very subtle way that is yanking you back to being present, or can you come back with kindness and mercy towards yourself? So in that simple moment where we are lost, there we can learn to be kind to ourselves. Often compassion, traditionally, is taught as compassion for somebody else. I'm gonna feel compassion for the homeless person or the dying person or the sick person or whatever it might happen to be. But once again, because of the the neurotic tendencies of most people here in the West, it is very difficult to have ongoing compassion for others if we are not simultaneously working with compassion for ourselves. So I find this interface between doing Vipassana or being centered in my belly, invoking in the the sense of being grounded and centered, the interface between that and the heart is where a lot of healing happens in my life. Really watching where my heart closes to whatever is arising as I keep surrendering. Thomas Merton said, love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. So it's easy to have an open heart when you're looking at somebody you love beautiful music is playing, you've just had a great meal, or you're in the middle of a serendipitously wonderful meditation. But in that moment where your mind is chaotic, where meditation is falling apart, where relationships aren't going so well, whatever it might happen to be, that is the moment where we can cultivate compassion. Beyond that, when you are dying at the moment of your death, it may be that you are sitting in a car with the person that you love the most, and he or she is screaming in terror. It may be that when you are dying that total strangers are ripping your shirt off and pounding on your chest. It may be that when you're dying, your bloodstream is filled with... uh, opiate drugs, so that it's very hard to focus the mind. So if, in fact, we're counting on the opportunity to die where the angels are playing their harps, and harp, harps, 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 and everybody is smiling and it's a very calm moment, uh, we might really be out of luck. And certainly the quality of awareness when there is a car spinning out of control or or when uh, your awareness is compromised through taking drugs or whatever this emotional or physical situation might happen to be is not the same as the awareness at the end of a long meditation retreat, say. But can we begin to see each moment as an opportunity for awareness and for compassion. The most beautiful Americans I have ever met, almost without exception, are people who are almost dead, which may sound kind of strange, but I choose to be around dying people not because I'm morbid or not because I'm Mother Teresa in drag or something like that. But because, in fact, being around someone who is approaching death is a very enlivening and awakening experience. Fear of death is equal to lack of enlightenment. Any place where you or I are caught in our identification with separateness is a place where you're going to be afraid to die. The New York Times did a survey a while back. What are you most afraid of? Number one was speaking in public, and number three was dying i, I you know I, I really don't remember uh, might be. I used to stutter a lot when I was a kid. I got some severe electrical shocks when I was very young, and I had a very hard time even talking. I was once in a spelling bee for the whole city of Chicago. And I had to stand up and say, my name is Dale Borglum. I'm in the sixth grade at St. Paul Lutheran School, and my teacher is Mr. Tedding, in front of a 1,000 people, including almost all of my relatives. And I kept saying, my name is... My name is... And uh, here I was about 12 years old, and it was just... It was quite frightening. But the point is that any resistance I had to that, any place where that was frightened to me, would be there as I was approaching death. And in fact, all fear is fear of death. Fear of death equals lack of enlightenment. So what we're saying now is that the open heart of compassion, supported by clear awareness, being grounded, being centered, can create a healing path. Uh, the next turning of the wheel of Buddhism is Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, which goes beyond the idea of compassion and brings in the, the concept, the, the practices of empowerment, allowing deities to manifest through you. And as we look around this rather psychedelic room that we happen to be in, We see uh, some of these deities, although from a Mahayana perspective, I guess. But what is being suggested here is that when the heart becomes open and spacious enough through doing awareness practice and compassion practice, then there is a quality of selflessness. There is not somebody, an I, who is doing the practice anymore. And in this, through this selflessness, then arises the possibility of the sacred that you have invoked in the beginning, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Christ, the Mother, operating through you. And we see very clearly in our world what happens when people get power who have not gone through the initiations of awareness and compassion. Political figures, sports figures, entertainment figures, people that get power, but they aren't compassionate human beings. Uh, how difficult it is for them not to make a complete mess of their lives. And then finally, the, the culmination of practice is non-dual practice. A, a few years ago, Eckhart Tolle was on the Oprah show, and I believe 9 million people around the world were tuning into his podcasts. And it would be my guess that less than 1% of one percent of those people were able to rest in non-dual awareness, even though Eckhart Tolle is a wonderful teacher, a true example of what he's talking about. But until we have gone through these stages of being deeply motivated to practice, invoking from the standpoint of the heart, the mind, and the body, opening through compassion and loving-kindness, and finally this quality of uh, empowerment, then non-dual awareness, which is the place where healing truly arises, will be something that uh, can arise only for a moment or two at a time. Now, having said all this, I would like to make an apology. Uh, I'm 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 a recovering mathematician. I have a PhD in mathematics. I went to Berkeley and Stanford, and it almost ruined my mind. And I like to see the structures of things. At the same time, by just doing Vipassana, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper in Just doing Zen, you can go deeper and deeper in. I like having all the tools of these five stages that I've talked about and looking at them from the standpoint of body, mind, and heart. Uh, And at times, working with what is my weaknesses and other times, what are my strengths. Excuse me. So as I mentioned before, I've done all this meditation practice and I can't sit down and go into some of these quote, rarefied states, unquote. But at the same time, because of certain things that happened in my childhood, I have a hard time staying grounded. I like to have the energy shoot up into my mind, think about things, understand things, and I truly believe that intellectualism is probably one of the most persistent and difficult spiritual illnesses to undo some knowing smiles here in the room. So let's see, I'm supposed to do this until for 9 to 8 to okay, more time. So what I was getting at there is that even though I'm, I'm explaining this, this structure, that if you're finding that uh, just doing Vipassana is really moving you forward, it isn't really necessarily the case that these other stages are something that uh, you have to work with, but that in fact they will arise naturally. Uh, my first meditation teacher was Suzuki Roshi the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, and his practice was simply just sitting. And yet, he was one of the most loving, kind, soft human beings I've ever met. He, he didn't really talk about compassion, he didn't do compassion practices, but when he laughed, his laughter was like the sound of a bubbling brook. So clearly, by just sitting you can come to all all you you can come to the end of the path at the same time i find for myself at least that bringing in compassion it really makes bearable and workable things that i have been very busy rejecting and pushing away so that you and most of you didn't spend 10 years studying mathematics so you probably didn't end up getting quite as neurotic as I did. But at the same time, in Vipassana, it is at times difficult to be aware of the voice in you that is directing the practice. There's this part of you that's saying, more concentration, I should, I'm not doing too well today, uh, and uh, the superego, the judging mind, is often not very open to awareness. So that by bringing compassion, by bringing a soft heart, a merciful heart, a kind heart into practice, one can begin to see, as I suggested earlier, those places where the heart is closed and we're caught in an idea of who we are and how we should practice. So just as an example, suppose that your mind is like a window frame. And through this chunk of uh, window frame that is your mind, you can see the sky. The sky is blue, and there are gray clouds passing through the blue sky. And into this chunk of sky that is bounded by your mind comes a gray cloud of anger, of happiness, of lust, of joy, good, bad, doesn't make any difference. If the window frame is small enough and the cloud is big enough, what is the experience? I am happy, I am horny, I am joyful, whatever it might happen to be. However, if then through practice, through compassion of of really allowing the heart become more and more spacious, the same size cloud can come into that same chunk of sky And now the experience is there is this blue sky and there's the gray cloud, but the window frame is big enough that you can see the cloud contextualized in the sky. You can also see that it's moving, that it's coming and eventually it's going to be gone. We don't know exactly when, but it's a profoundly different experience to be identified with that cloud than to just allow yourself to see it as a passing mind-body state. Another metaphor, suppose you lost something and it's dark and you know it's on the ground somewhere so you pick up a flashlight and you're looking around for what it is you've lost and aha there it is. Now usually we identify with either I'm the guy who's got the flashlight or I am that object that my flashlight is shining on. Like, I am happy or I am angry or whatever it might happen to be. But what happens as practice deepens is we have the experience that we're not the guy holding the flashlight, we're not what the flashlight is shining on, we're the flashlight. We're awareness itself, we're consciousness meeting an object. Okay, so you know I'm supposed to talk for 10 more minutes, but what I'd like to do is have more opportunity for questions, and if there aren't any, then I can talk more, I can do that for days at a time. But uh, yeah, please. In fact, I guess we're supposed to do a thing here with a microphone. Would, would you mind, would somebody pass that back? Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, I heard you mention earlier in your talk about grief.
0: I'm sorry, could you uh, say again?
1: I heard you mention earlier in your talk about grief.
0: About grief, grief? yes. Uh-huh.
1: And you, I think um, you spoke to it in terms of grief as opposed to compassion, almost as if there were opposites but I'm not sure if I understood that correctly. So could you talk to
2: that a little bit?
0: Okay. Grief, we often think of overly simplistically as feeling sad because someone has died. Grief is really any negative emotion that arises in reaction to separation. Separation from an identity, uh, from the loss of someone you love. Everyone in this room is grieving whether someone you know has died recently or not. Everyone has lost part of your childhood dream, everyone has lost part of your identities, and probably most of you know someone who has died that you care about or at least lost relationships. But grief is that quality of of negative emotion in relationship to separation. Compassion then is the open heart meeting that grief and feeling connected and spacious. And as I said before, Rumi's quote that that grief is the garden of compassion is really suggesting that it is grief that blocks compassion, but it is also the fertilizer that allows compassion to unfold in the garden. So that if, in fact, we can, with great mercy and kindness, be aware of how we are separating ourselves from other human beings because of unresolved grief, uh, how we are separating ourselves from our own nature, and then have compassion for that, then healing will begin to happen. just trying to think if there's anything else quickly to say about grief. Many of you I will never see again after half an hour from now. And many of you will not see each other after half an hour from now. Some of you come regularly. But our unresolved grief is what keeps us from realizing that we're going to die, but we don't know when. This is the moment where we can be alive together. And that's why being around dying people is so enlivening, because when I'm with somebody who might not be breathing much longer, it really then elicits from me a, a, a very deep desire to be fully with that human being, to not be messing around with, Talking about the weather or the Giants' problem at third base, or you know whatever it might happen to be, but how 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 alive can we be together? How deeply can we be connected? And uh, I think there's no more profound practice for the 21st century than having a deep inner contemplative practice combined with outwardly having some connection with being around death. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, a very wild guy, said, and I'm paraphrasing, that until one comes in intimate contact with death, spiritual practice will have the quality of being a dilettante. Or he who is practicing will have the quality of practicing in a dilettantish way, if you will so that that really until we actually know that we're going to die in our bones not just intellectually it, in the marrow of our bones until we really know that then it's easy to be social to meet people to meet yourself in a way that isn't confronting that deep quality of grief and separation so uh, i'll leave it at that anybody else want the microphone
2: Interesting that you're um, talking about the subject when it's a part of my life right now. Um, not my life, but my mother's life, who is, will be 100 years old uh, next week, but going through a really tough time right now. Right. And speaking for myself, it's um, pretty scary to, to be with, not scary to be with her, but scary to see the way she is and the things she's going through now. At the end of her Could life. Could
0: you say that again? It's scary for you to be around her the way she is.
2: No, scary to see and and to feel and to um, to see the way she is right now because it's not her normal state, and so it's affecting me um, in a very sad way. Okay. And so um, I, I'm. how does one deal with that, and, and, and also having the decision to decide whether we continue uh, technically keeping her alive or letting her be or or what to do because of the the quality of her life has so deteriorated?
0: As we look around the room, we see older, younger, bigger, smaller, more hair, less hair, glasses, no glasses, whatever. And... Uh, In that dimension, you will die and I will die. We age, we get sick, we fall in love, we fall out of love, whatever. Is there another way to look around the room and see the way that we are the same? Is there a way to look at one's inner experience and see that which is the same from moment to moment, the quality of awareness of, of consciousness itself? The function of consciousness is to grow and change, and consciousness does not care how much it hurts or how long it takes. And I hope that I die relatively slowly, maybe with cancer or something like that, rather than just dropping dead like that one day from a heart attack or an accident. Because having this time at the end of one's life, even though it might be difficult for the people that love me to see me deteriorate and not be who I used to be, that during this time at the end of life, I can be learning qualities that maybe I'm not so great at when I'm active and dynamic, uh, becoming passive, becoming quiet, letting go, letting go of control, Uh, maybe being in a, a coma or being demented at the end of one's life, even though it's financially and emotionally hard for the family members and loved ones to be around, maybe that is a very productive time of life from the standpoint of consciousness. So working with dying, particularly, but also working with living, takes learning how to do this delicate balancing act, this tight, high, tightrope walk thing, whatever you call it, of holding the human and the sacred at the same time. So in being around somebody who's dying, I can really jump in there and, and be with the person's emotions and feel the, the sadness and the suffering and the hopelessness or whatever it might happen to be. Or I can be Dale, the director of the Living Dying Project, this long-time meditator, and it's all just consciousness unfolding. It's all karma, that's all it is. But can I do both of those at the same time? Can I really be with that human being and yet keep that window frame metaphor that I was talking about before wide open? So your work is that to to the extent that you can keep opening to your own suffering that being in relationship to your mother is resonating or uncovering, to that extent you will be a living invitation to her for her to awaken to the standpoint that you or I are getting caught up in, oh, my God, my mother's not who she used to be, then the depth of support you're offering her is limited by the depth of your identification with those emotions. And certainly, it's a lot easier to practice sitting here in a room with the support than it is at your mother's bedside. Ah, my brother's here tonight, David, and both of our parents died uh, with cancer. And uh, I remember once, I was going to actually, uh, it was about 10 years before my father died, he wasn't sick. And he and my mother and I and my Female accomplice of the moment was driving in a car. We're, we're driving in a car in the mountains, hills there by uh, Half Moon Bay, very beautiful summer afternoon. And I said to my father, uh, I'm going to teach a workshop next weekend in Berkeley about conscious dying. Would you like to hear what I'm going to talk about? And he said, Isn't it a beautiful day today? He was a Danish Lutheran, as I have been blessed with also, and he he didn't he obviously didn't want to talk about that ten years later. he's lying in a hospital bed, and it was less than a week before he was going to die and I said to him,, uh, "What do you think is going on with you right now?" And he could have said, "Isn't it a beautiful day today?" But what he did say was I don't know, what do you think? So he invited me in. And that, asking that provocative question, seeing what kind of permission is there, is a a really useful quality when somebody is approaching the end of life. And I said, well, I really hope I'm wrong, Dad, but it looks to me like you're dying. And uh, he said, you know, that's what I think too. And he and I had the first, real conversation that we'd had in our whole life. And he said, go home and tell your mother that I'm dying and I want to talk to her about it. So I came home and I said, Mom, uh, Dad and I were talking and he feels that he's dying and he wants to talk to you about it. And she said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, he does. And I took her to the hospital and she eventually crawled in bed with him, and they held each other, and they cried, and a lot of healing happened. And he and I had this fantastic uh, this fantastic relationship for the last seven or ten days of his life, and I really wish that it could have been a lot longer, but that was what we were given. But even those, that short amount of time healed the lack of relationship we'd had for the previous, I don't know, 87, 20, I don't know... 50 some years whatever it was at that time 40 don't or something other questions yes, sir thank you up here uh, or either either one we'll we'll do both
2: oh, okay
0: oh okay
1: um, can you can you hear me so my question is about um well, I had an experience on a retreat where I felt like I confronted dying in a way that I never had before, where it suddenly hit me that I really was going to die and everyone around me was going to die and right. all my family was going to die and and it was devastating. And um and then coming back out of the safety of retreat, um I was I still had that feeling, you know, of of this this knowing and then there's this crazy world that we live in. And then, but then eventually I have to get back to operating in this crazy world, but then there's still this knowing. And I I almost feel like because I'm, well, I don't want to leave it behind, but I also don't know how to, um, how to be here, um, in that knowing. So it's just, anyway, so I'm just wondering if you have any advice about that. Yeah.
0: That's a very good question, and, uh. I don't know if five minutes will do it justice. There's there's a couple of things I can say to that, and the first is that, uh, in fact, let me do a, a, a plug for myself here. I, I lead this group on Monday nights in Berkeley, and it's a group that works with healing from a meditative standpoint, not healing necessarily physically, but really working with exactly that kind of question. So if anybody's interested in that, there are some flyers about that in the back or you could talk to me. But my experience is that as one begins to surrender into the belly or just doing regular Vipassana practice, that one begins to, sometimes at a manageable rate, and sometimes at an unmanageable rate, uncover psychophysical blocks to being fully present. And often in Vipassana practice, or in Buddhist practice in general, one gets caught in the trap of paying attention to each breath or each thought, and or at least trying to, and in the attempt to do that, losing the forest for the trees. That in other words, there's an underlying energetic emotional state through which all thoughts, all experience is being filtered. And if one can at times during practice widen one's focus and feel qualities of, and I forget the emotions you just mentioned, but uh, I'll just make up some that don't necessarily apply to you, but you're meditating and... For instance, for me, uh, when I sit, there tends to be planning. And if I watch the planning and I widen my focus, I'll feel that underneath that, there's a desire to stay in control. And if I widen my focus more, underneath that, there is a feeling of the world isn't safe. And underneath that is the sense that I'm afraid. So that by working with emotions in that way, one is able to drop down into some core levels of holding and work directly with the the core structural fear that has created your personality. And then even beyond that, uh, get to presence itself, which I know isn't big in the Vipassana community, but I'll throw that out anyway. The other thing I could say is that... My, my experience in meditating is something like the following. I'm sitting there. My mind starts getting quieter. Spaciousness feels wonderful. And then (coughs) thoughts arise. Thoughts go on for a shorter or longer period of time. I become aware of the thoughts. The thoughts then pass away. Uh, Spaciousness feels great. That goes on for a while, thoughts arise again, I'm aware of the thoughts, then they go away. So I ask myself, well why do these thoughts keep coming up if it feels so great not that it to just be resting in this clarity where, and I'm kind of over simplifying here because of the, the time element. Certainly all thoughts aren't these contracted compulsive thoughts, but I'm talking about the kind of thoughts we really get caught in. Uh, And what I began to experience during retreat settings was that right before the thoughts would begin, there was fear of death. Not a big, daily afraid of death, but there was something where uh, I believed Descartes, even though my mind knows that he's not true. I think, therefore I am. That I wanted to think so there could be some solidness. So that, One very direct way of getting in touch with this fear of death and the fact that everybody's going to die is to be very alert to that subtle feeling that keeps driving the whole personality project, if you will. And so during the retreat, you started getting in touch with that, and then you come out in the world and see that uh, people aren't living as if that were true. And it does seem like people are crazy. I remember once I did a, a, a long retreat with Joseph and Jack back in Massachusetts before IMS. It was at some other Christian retreat center. And me and two of my friends were driving back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we lived at the time, and we stopped at a Howard Johnson's. And went in there, and I had this experience that it was like I was in a surreal movie that everyone was asleep that it was like a zombie movie. And people thought they had the choice between a Cobb salad or a Caesar salad, but they didn't have the choice, that it was all conditioned response. There was no free will going on there at all. And then, of course, after a few weeks or days, whatever it was, I probably got caught in that place myself again. But the contrast between that clarity of of being in the unconditioned mind for a while and seeing the way life is, there is a sense that people are mad. And uh, that might be a good time to do the offering of metta, (laughs) which we're supposed to do at this particular time. As we bring this evening's practice to a close, please dedicate any wisdom, any merit that has come to you through sitting, through listening to or thinking about the Dharma. Please dedicate this merit to the well-being of all sentient beings on this planet. having a deep wish that you yourself be liberated from suffering, that you yourself be happy. Having a deep wish that those you love be free from suffering and are happy. Having a deep wish that all sentient beings be free from suffering. And if you are willing, if you wish, dedicate not just this evening's practice, but dedicating your life itself to to the, the practice of awakening and becoming a force for healing and compassion in this world so that wherever you go, healing and compassion are spread, that you are a healing force in the lives of those that you come in contact with. Feeling gratitude for the Dharma itself, for the fact that we have each been enabled to come in contact with these teachings that can bring freedom in this world that at times does seem to be mad. And sending loving kindness to all beings, whether they have been caught in earthquakes or revolutions. Right now, millions of people are dying at this very moment. Millions of people are being born at this very moment. People are abusing and being abused. Letting your heart be so spacious, so open, that there is no suffering in this world. that causes your heart to contract. And touching this spaciousness so nakedly, so directly, so openly, that for every time that you forget and get lost, that this experience of openness is burned into your consciousness and will arise and you will awaken again. Before the British came to India, there was no word for thank you in the languages native to India because it was felt that if you had it and I needed it, you would give it to me, and if I had it and you needed it, I would give it to you, and that thanking creates a giver and receiver. And in spite of that, I would like to thank you all very much. (laughs)